Our reading this evening is from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 and 12. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening. And I always count it as a great blessing to be able to be in this pulpit and to worship with you and to study the greatest book in all the world. And that's our Bible. And I always look forward to it. And I look forward to being with the best people in the world. And that's just right here at Broadway. We uh, had a wonderful day today. Thank you, Phil, for the announcements and bringing those matters to our mind. We're grateful for Ed and the work that he does, for Nat and the work that he does with the young people and so many aspects of the work. And we tried to discuss and present just a little bit of that today. And we do this once a year. And I hope that it encourages you, it encourages me, that we might be able to work even more and accomplish more in the year that comes if it is the Lord's will. And once again, the things which we're able to do, we're always very grateful. And we're thankful to God that he gives us the opportunity to work and serve as we are his servants. And so we uh, look forward to this year. We're standing on the brink of great opportunities, and I hope and pray that he will be pleased with our efforts and that we'll use what efforts that we have, what abilities and what talents that we have for him. I wanted to speak tonight about the book of Revelation. We are studying about it more specifically in our Sunday morning Bible class. And it's not my intention to preach a sermon each night on Sunday night on the book of Revelation. I've done that before. But I would like to give some brief overview of the book, which uh, I think might help in our study of what we're looking at on Sunday mornings. And in turn, uh, maybe... It'll be more meaningful to us and for us as we study his word in this great book of the Bible. A lot of people are afraid of the book Revelation, and they should not be. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I think the word today is misinformation. A lot of misinformation about the book Revelation. I ask that this passage be read tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. If it is a, it is a trustworthy statement. The Apostle Paul in this section of 2 Timothy 2 is talking about the duties of gospel preachers. And anybody who desires to preach the gospel of Christ and anyone who has an interest in doing that ought to take First and Second Timothy very seriously and study it very carefully as it addresses important matters with regard to the gospel preacher. Same thing's true with deacons. Same thing's true with elders. In fact, it has a lot to do for all of us with regard to being children of God. Right in this particular section, though, he's talking about being faithful. And he's talking about the need to be faithful in the sight of God. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we die with him, we will also live with him. This is the last of the trustworthy statements that are found in First and Second Timothy. There are several. In this particular instance, he says, now you can take it to the bank. It's absolutely certain, absolutely sure and then he gives us four if statements. Let's see if we can understand them. For if we died with him, 
we will also live with him. If we died with him, that is, if we're dead to sin, during the conversion process of hearing the word of God and repenting of our sins, we put to death the old way of life, and we rose to walk in a newness of life, a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If you don't understand Romans chapter 6, you need to go back and study it very carefully as it talks about this process of being dead to sin, dead to that old way of living, and now alive with Jesus Christ. But there's a second if statement here. If we deny, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we're patient and we continue to be steadfast, endurance, we will reign. Much of our discussion tonight will talk about the emperors of Rome and their reign. But reigning with Christ is the desire of every child of God and should be the desire of every individual. And then the third if statement. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Remind you of Matthew 10, 32 and 33. For if you confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But he that denieth me before men, him will I also deny before my heavenly Father. If we deny him, he'll have no part of us. And then the fourth if statement is found in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are not faithful to the word of God and faithful to the cause of Christ, Christ will not save us in that condition. He would not be faithful to himself in doing so, but he remains faithful. I picked this particular passage out because I think it summarizes a lot of what we'll learn in the book of Revelation. But there's another. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice in about verse, oh, it's about verse uh, 12, I suppose, that, uh, that I have in mind. But I like to talk about the context, so bear with me just for a minute. The passage that I had in mind is verse 12. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he begins the paragraph in verse 10. He says, Now, Timothy, follow my teaching my conduct, the way of life that I live, my purpose, my faith, my patience, follow my love and perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at, and he talks about Antioch. We remember what happened to Paul in Antioch, Acts chapter 13, how that they rejected the word of God, and of course did so because of the rabble-rousing Jew, rabble Jews that wouldn't have anything to do with him. And then he leaves in that journey from Antioch to Iconium, as he mentions it in verse 11. That would be in Acts chapter 14. And they would follow him to Iconium. And because of their unbelief, they simply were forced out of the town of Iconium, and they go on to the next city, Lystra, which also is found for us in Acts chapter 14. And there, because those unbelieving Jews, rebel-rousers, which came from Antioch and Iconium, they actually ended up stoning Paul and leaving him for dead at Lystra. And so he says, now, persecutions and suffering such as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And here it is, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And that's much of what we see in the pages of the book of Revelation. The persecution of the saints in the first century. The children of God who were faithful to God. 
and thus faced great persecution and severe persecution at that. It's hard for us to get a handle on that. It's hard for us to get a handle on what it means to be persecuted. Oh, someone might say to us, I just don't believe like you believe. Or you people are always the kind of people who say this or believe that or do this or the other. And that's about the limits to the persecution that you and I face. It's not the kind of persecution we're talking about. Hard for us to get a handle on the great persecution that they were suffering the last portion of the first century. People were suffering and they were suffering greatly. It was severe persecution. So what I'd like to do is take our minds back to about the time of 96 A.D. and just see what it would be like to be living as a Christian in the city of Rome or as a Christian in the area known as Asia Minor. The emperor would be Domitian. He would be an individual who would declare himself Lord and God. And anyone must and everyone must declare their allegiance to Lord God Domitian. In the course of history, it taught us that the Roman Empire began to develop this idea of emperor worship. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't just spring up. But through the years and through the time and the decades that would pass as the Roman Empire would grow stronger and stronger, they'd begin to develop this idea that the emperor was God. And it is the first time that an emperor actually declares himself Lord God. The Lord God Domitian declares so and so and such and such. If you take the early date to the book of Revelation, about 68 A.D., you're going to see all the persecution at the time of Nero and the destruction of this temple in the city of Jerusalem. You're going to see that as the focus of the book. But yet Nero's persecution was more of a limited persecution, a limited persecution in the area of Rome itself. But by the time of Nero, uh, Domitian in 96 AD, it's an area-wide persecution. All Christians in the empire, no matter where they might be, are being persecuted and are suffering for the cause of Christ and persecuted severely. Future emperors would persecute them. Letters of persecution would come down from the emperor to governments governing the different provinces. For that reason, Christians would be burned at the stake. Christians would be skinned alive. They'd be boiled in pots of hot burning oil, boiling oil. They'd be fed to the beast, the lion, and the gladiator, and also ravenous dogs and wolves. They in turn would become merciless prey to the gladiator in the Colosseum. They were crucified, and all sorts of various means of torture beyond the scale of imagination would be Invised and in turn given and lashed out upon the people of the first century church. There are a number of very ingenious ways to persecute Christian people in the first century. I'll not go into the specifics of them, but yet at any time one might be taken simply because he was a child of God and thus persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so by the time of Domitian, it meant something to be a Christian. It really meant something to worship God. They didn't have a place to worship as we have tonight. 
because worship of any god or deity outside of Domitian himself would be prohibited. It'd be against the Roman law. And so the shades were drawn, and Christians would come together. They'd be worshiping on the first day of the week just as they'd been instructed in the pages of the Bible. One Christian would say to another Christian, we've had a terrible time in our family because our son, our daughter, was carried away into the Colosseum and was killed because of being a Christian. One of the early signs of being a Christian in the first century was the sign of the fish. We often think of the sign of a Christian today as the sign of a cross, and it has become the symbol of Christianity today, the cross. When you see a cross, you think of a Christian person. Christian people, of course, didn't use the cross as a symbol in the first century. In the early hours, the early days of Christianity, they used the fish. And there would be a fish symbol on the doorpost of this one, of that one, indicating the fact that this is a Christian family that lives here. And so one of the great points of the book of Revelation, as I overview it and I, I look at some of it tonight in just the brief time that I have, is this matter of overcoming overcoming the persecution, overcoming the suffering. God's people needed a message of encouragement, a message of hope, because it looked like who could defy the great eagle of Rome? Who could go up against Rome and its laws? Rome has dictated that all people worship the emperor, but a Christian can't do that. Why, the Lord God, we must love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. We've got to love him and serve him. We can't serve as a Christian anything other than God. One of the first commandments that we read in the Old Testament is that we should have no other gods before us. How can we worship him? And so Christians were pressed on every side because of their faith. It was a tragic time and a troublesome time living in the latter portion of the first century if you were a Christian. Now think about the opportunities that you and I have tonight as Christian people. We come in a beautiful building. We walk on new carpet. We sit on cushions. It is heated for us for our liking. It is cooled for us. The auditorium is lit we have no fear in meeting and assembling tonight and pressing our minds with the Word of God because the law is on our side. And He gives us freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. And now we have the opportunity to worship as God teaches and encourage others to do the same thing. We don't face what they faced in the first century. I'm telling you, it meant something to be a Christian in the first century of time where people were persecuted for their faith. And God is telling them in the book of Revelation, remain faithful. He who overcomes will not have to experience the second death. He who overcomes what? He who overcomes self. He who overcomes sin. He who overcomes the world and the cultural influences of the world. He who overcomes Satan will be able to come over and live with God forever and ever. Notice with me, Revelation chapter 2, and you'll find in this particular passage, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, 
Revelation chapter 3 and the verses, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The great glory that we see is found for us in the book of Revelation with regard to the nature of God and the throne room of God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 and 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And let me read for you verse 14 out of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And that great sharp sickle really is conveying the idea of God reaping those for the great day of judgment. Notice how it's important that it's a dark day and a dark time, but don't be filled with despair over 96 A.D., but at the same time have hope and have the confident expectation that you will overcome. Notice what he says in chapter 14 and 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Skip on over to chapter 22. In chapter 22 and about verse 14, you have a wonderful verse there talking about the fate of the righteous, those who overcome. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. And then if I may, let me read another passage, which is one of my favorites. It's Revelation 7. I read it many times. I read it many times at funeral services and uh, many times as a means of encouragement for myself. Revelation 7 and about verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know, verse 14. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne with, uh, will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, neither will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. Now verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, it's a great passage of comfort. Even though they're suffering because of the difficulty of the day and the trying persecutions that have come about them from Satan and uh, through his minions, Still, there's great comfort and encouragement with regard to the children of God. Even though they face physical suffering and persecution, there's a great day coming. God is in control. He's got the whole world in his hand, and his Christ reigns as king of heaven and earth. And so it may be that I do not understand every symbol in the book of Revelation. 
It could very well be, and it is the case, that I don't understand every particular nuance of meaning with regard to this one or that one. And we may come to some difference of opinion and difference of idea with regard to a symbol here and a symbol there, but I can know the message of the book. The message of the book is one of comfort and hope. He who overcomes will be called to come over and live with God forever and ever. Now that I'm talking about this matter of symbolism, let me talk a little bit more about it. That is, it is a book filled with symbols. But that should not discourage us in our discussions and in our study of the book of Revelation. We're not used to this kind of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And you and I have studied a little bit about what that word means. It means an unveiling, that God has pulled the curtain back and he's allowed us to see what's going on on the other side. And we've had that privilege because of John, who's on the island of Patmos, received this vision from Christ, and he's told to write down what he saw. Now, if we were good students of Daniel and good students of Zechariah and good students of Ezekiel, it would give us a little better understanding of what's going on in the book of Revelation, as you have apocalyptic literature in these great books of the Bible as well. But these particular matters, even though they're couched in symbols, were real things that were happening. They were things that were happening to the people of that day. But never get the idea that it was just for their day. It is also for our day as well. It's not that we may be facing a wicked world empire as they did then, but many of the struggles and the problems of life we will face as well. And it gives us hope and encouragement and understanding for the events of life as we face them, comfort, consolation, and strength. For example, in Revelation chapter 13, it's a very interesting chapter <clears throat> in chapter 13, and I'll spend just a brief moment discussing it, and it'll just be brief. But you have two beasts that come upon the scene of action. You have the beast of the sea in the beginning portion of Revelation 13. And then in the last portion of Revelation 13, you have the beast of the earth. And John says he sees a terrible beast coming out of the sea. And as you look at the description of the beast of the sea, it becomes pretty clear that John is visualizing here the Lord's symbolic representation of a very wicked world empire and how it tries to have dominion over all people. But not only is there the beast of the sea, there's also the beast of the land. And he sees a terrible beast in about verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. Well, his point is false religion. False religion now is being forced upon the people, and in so doing, it's forcing them to worship the first beast, and that is the government, which we see at that day and time, Rome. Rome is the vicious first beast, which we find in this particular passage. And then, of course, an adjunct of that, a supporter of that, a lieutenant of that, is the beast of the land, which is saying, everyone worship the emperor. This is the religion which you were to follow, and in turn, 
abide by. But we see what will happen to the beast of the sea, and we'll see later what will happen to the beast of the land. And this is something that I'd like to just mention in passing as I take an overview and a, a look at the book as a whole. It seems as though that things are going in such a dark direction, and that evil is so strong and wickedness is so powerful that it just doesn't seem like anything can overcome it. And at the last minute, righteousness prevails. God and his people are victorious. Here's a woman who's ready to give birth. And the old dragon is waiting for the child to be born, to destroy the child. And just as soon as the child is to be born, the dragon will kill and destroy the child. And at the last minute, the child is spared and saved. And the dragon, once again, <clears throat> is foiled in his purpose. This kind of imagery happens over and over again in the symbols of the book of Revelation. It seems like everything is so dark and dreary, and it seems like evil is going to win because it's so powerful. But God steps in, and the people of God win, and God is victorious. This naturally would help people who are having to face difficulty in their daily walk of life and living the Christian life. Be faithful. Even though you face such difficulties and problems of life, you will overcome. If you'll overcome here, you will be able to come over there and live with God in eternity forever and ever. I think it's important to have this particular warning. There are a number of interpretive thoughts with regard to the book of Revelation. One thing that I would caution us about, if I come up with an understanding of a Bible passage from the book of Revelation, and I think, well, this has got to be what the passage really means. This has got to be what it says. But then I find out that my interpretation of that contradicts another verse of the Bible. Then I know my understanding of that verse of Revelation is in error. Because I know no verse of the Bible will contradict another verse. There's something lacking, not in the Bible, but with my understanding of it. And that's a good Bible principle to keep in mind whenever we're studying the Word of God. That no Bible passage is going to contradict another. And if I come up with a conclusion with regard to a verse that does contradict another verse from the pages of this book or any other book, then I know for sure I've got the wrong idea in mind. And I do not have the proper understanding that Christ wants me to have. I need to go back and study it once again. One of the key points to the book of Revelation, and there are so many I think is this vision of Christ, and so I'll turn to that in chapter 1 and spend just a brief moment talking with you about this, how that it is such a key passage with regard to the rest of the book. John's on the island of Patmos, he tells us, because of his uh, faithfulness in preaching and teaching the Word of God. I don't think he was there just to receive the revelation. I think he was there because of his suffering for his proclamation of the Word of God. And he tells us that Jesus is giving a vision, giving a message to all of the churches, the seven churches of Asia. 
In the midst of that vision, by the time we get to verse 9, we have a very unique vision of Jesus. And so I spend just a brief moment talking about it tonight. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now he tells us in verse 20 what the lampstands refer to. The lampstands are referring to the seven churches found in Asia. As we studied earlier today, there were more than just seven churches in the province, the Roman province of Asia. But these are picked out because of the completeness of the number seven. We're going to find ourselves mirrored somewhere in one of these seven congregations. Some of the good things that they did, perhaps some of the bad things that they're noted for. But without getting into the specifics with regard to the seven churches... I wanted to focus on the Christ and how he is presented. And verse 13 continues, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a fireplace or a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last." I don't believe that Jesus literally looks like this. I believe that this is symbolic representation of who and what Jesus is. I believe what he's describing in this particular matter is the authority of Jesus Christ, that he is our high priest, and that he is the one that we owe our allegiance and our faithful dedication to. And so he explains the symbols for us in verse 20, as I mentioned once ago. He's talking about the angels that are at the congregations, the preacher or the respective elder that might be there with regard to the seven congregations that are referenced in the book. And he also talks about the matter of the lampstands that represent the individual congregations. And Jesus is there among them, walking among them. He is the living one. He was dead, verse 18. And behold, I am forevermore, and I have the keys of death, and of Hades. I have the power over death, and I have the power to cast those into eternal condemnation and into life's other side. Yes, it is a vivid description of Jesus, his authority, and his power. And he commends us for our study of these particular matters and the importance of understanding this as it applies to us. And let me make just a brief moment, and my time is quickly falling away here, with regard to that point right there, application to us. I'd like to take a point about the fact that as you go through chapter 2 and chapter 3, which I'll not do tonight, 
But in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he talks about what he knows about the congregations. He knows this one about them, or he knows that about them, or he knows this over here, what they have done, what they haven't done. As you know today, we talked about some of the things that we've been able to accomplish with the Lord's help in the past year or so, and the things that we look forward to accomplishing in the years ahead, and we spoke about that matter in an effort to inform and encourage and motivate us all to be more faithful in our dedication to Christ at this place. But one thing is for sure, God knows. It may be a need for us to have a special discussion on a Sunday morning to help you know, but God knows. It may be the need for us to have a special explanation well, this group is working in this area, and this group is working in that area, and there's a need for this over here, and we have some good folks working on that matter over there. And look at these fine Bible classes that we have over here. And you say, well, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. But God knows. God knows what we do. The one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, he knows what we do. He knows the good things, he knows the bad things. And a special word is used in that regard, with regard to the seven churches, and it makes reference to us as well. I know your works. And that special word that he uses is a word which conveys the divine knowledge which God has with regard to every congregation that belongs to him. He knows what we do. He knows when we fail. Now, you can't hide from God. And let me just speak to you as plainly and as humbly and as sincerely as I know how. You can't hide from God. You can't hide your life from God. We as a congregation cannot hide from Christ, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We can't do it. Oh, we may act like it. We may act like God doesn't know. We may act like Christ doesn't know. But we can't hide our life before God. There have been a lot of men who tried to do it. Man tried to do it one time. He took a ship headed toward Tarshish. And God sent a great wind upon the sea. And they took that man and threw him overboard. And God prepared a special fish to swallow that man. And as he did... He prayed to God within the confines of that fish, and God extricated him from the fish and cast him upon the land, and he went to the city of Nineveh to preach. And the whole city repented in sackcloth and ashes. People try to hide from God, and you can't do it. I know your works. And we can carry it a step further than that. God knows our heart. He knows what goes on in our heart. We can't hide that. You can hide your heart from me. I can't see inside you. You can't see inside me. But you can't see, you can't hide that heart from God. He knows whether that's a sincere heart. He knows whether we're being hypocritical or not. He knows whether we're trying to put on a good front for other people. He knows you can't hide from God. So why try? You're only going to disappoint yourself when you try to be something other than what you are. Be yourself. Be a Christian. Be a faithful child of God. 
Because you can't hide it from God. And He's the one who's everything, sees everything with whom we have to do. Everything is naked before Him, as the Hebrew writer was saying. And so he said to the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and these great seven churches, Thyatira, I know your works. I know you're facing struggles. I know you face difficulty. What if he were writing a letter to the church at Broadway? What would he say? Would he commend us? I suppose in some respects he would. Would he condemn us? I suppose in some respects he would. As some things need to be improved and corrected. But let us do that and repent as he encouraged these churches in the New Testament to do. Brethren, we... um, have such wonderful opportunities and such an easy life compared to the life that I've been studying about and reading about from the book of Revelation. I encourage you to read and study this great book. We'll be studying it on Sunday morning. It's not my intent to study it every Sunday night. I've done that before, and it's not my intent to spend sermons on this every Sunday night. But I want to take a minute to go over it just for a little while and encourage us to study it like we've never studied before and apply it to our hearts and minds like we really should. And for those of us who are members of the Church of the Lord, may we grow stronger and more faithful and more dedicated like we've never been before. And for those of you who have never obeyed the gospel of Christ, may you do so tonight. May you see from the study of this book how important it is for you to be a child of God. May you see from a study of this book how much God wants you to be in fellowship with him. So much so that he gave his son to die on the cross. We talk about that a lot. And how that he died and was raised from the dead. And that he ascended back to God on high. Acts chapter 1. The establishment of that great church, Acts chapter 2, which he wants all people to be a part of, the church you read about in the pages of the Bible. And when you repent of your sins, and you're dead to sin, and you're obedient to Jesus Christ by confessing your faith, and by being baptized into Jesus Christ, then in turn you're added to that church. Oh, it was a persecuted church in the first century. Persecutions will come and go. But yet, those who overcome will be allowed to come over and live with him forever and ever. If you're not a child of God tonight, I urge you to become one. Become a faithful child of God by obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've been unfaithful, repent of it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.